0: dag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den tyske filosof Axel Honneth, der har opnået det for tænkere ganske sjældne, at hans teori har bredt sig til vores institutioner, ind i vores kultur, i vores uddannelsesystemer, i vores måde at tænke og tale på. Han udgav i 1992-bogen Kampen om anerkendelse, Der blev oversat til dansk og en masse andre sprog, og blev læst og til pensum på universiteter, faktisk over hele kloden. Grundtanken i kampen om anerkendelse, den er meget kort fortalt. At alle mennesker skal anerkendes i tre dimensioner for at realisere sig selv. Hvis du vil blive en fuld person, skal du med andre ord anerkendes i følgende tre sfære. I familien af din absolut nærmeste, der skal du anerkendes. Og anerkendelsens form har, om det så er med din partner, med dine forældre eller med dine børn, det er den ubetingede kærlighed. Ikke for, hvad du gør, men for, hvem du er. Uanset hvad du gør, så anerkendes du gennem kærlighed i de nærmeste relationer. Den næste anerkendelsesform, vi har brug for, det er som borger i en retsstat. Og det er både uafhængigt af, hvad vi gør og hvem vi er, så vil vi beskyttes af rettigheder, som sikrer vores frihed i den sociale virkelighed i det offentlige rum og i vores liv, i øvrigt rigtig mange sociale kampe har handlet om at udvide dem, der er omfattet af de juridiske rettigheder. Borgerrettighedsbevægelsen for eksempel, kvindebevægelsen for eksempel, handler om, at der er nogen, der er stod uden for den juridiske anerkendelse og vil ind i den juridiske anerkendelse. Den tredje form for anerkendelse handler ikke om, hvem du er, og handler ikke om dig som retssubjekt, som borger i en stat. Den handler om, hvad du bidrager med, hvad du gør. Det kan man kalde for en præstationsanerkendelse, eller en anerkendelse af dig som individ. Og det kan være lige fra, at du er enormt god til at spille guitar, til at du er god til at udfylde en social funktion, til at du bidrager med noget, du producerer, eller du bidrager med omsorg at du bliver anerkendt for det, som du bestræber dig på at bidrage med til fællesskabet. De tre former for anerkendelse skal være til stede, for at du kan realisere dig selv som person. Og hvis man ser historisk på det, vil håndets pointe være, så har vi set fremskridt i anerkendelse, både i familien, i retstatus, i samfundet, og i hvad vi anerkender som bidrag til fællesskabet. Meget kort fortalt kan man sige, at Arbejde i en specifik form i 100 var den måde, man anerkendte bidrag til fællesskabet på. Aristokraterne var altid for fine til arbejde, men dem, der så kunne bidrage med lønarbejde, blev også anerkendt. Og der kan man sige, for det første er arbejdsbegrebet udvidet, så det ikke bare er produktion, men også det, man kalder reproduktion, dvs. gennem omsorg, sundhed og pleje, genskabelse af hele den sociale virkelighed men at det også bliver bredere forstået i den forstand, du kan bidrage til den politiske samtale, du kan bidrage til civilsamfundet. Nu har Axel Honnetag skrevet en ny bog. Den er netop udkommet i dette forår, som hedder Det arbejdende suveræn. Og tesen i den bog er, at man forstår ikke frihedskampen i de moderne samfund, hvis ikke... Man også engagerer sig i arbejdsmarkedet. Man kan ikke, nu sætter jeg det lidt på spidsen af pædagogiske årsager, man kan ikke være slave på arbejdsmarkedet og fri som borger i samfundet. Man kan ikke leve nedslidt, psykisk og med enorm enormt pres økonomisk, og uden at have tid til at orientere sig nogen som helst steder eller overskud til det på arbejdsmarkedet og bagefter være borger i demokratiet. Arbejdsmarkedet er det sted, hvor de fleste af os bliver dannet, og det er der, vi bliver anerkendt for vores bidrag. Arbejdsmarkedet er fundamentet for fællesskabet. Og hvis ikke arbejdsmarkedet faciliterer den fælles frihed, så undergraver den det. Og vi har i 50 år ifølge holdet forsømt den kamp. Jeg er ikke helt enig med ham. Jeg mener, der er en opblusende arbejdskampen I, I de her engagere engagement omkring den. Jeg mener alt fra strikerne mod Amazon til me MeToo er arbejdskamper, og derfor er der allerede en friheds kamp i gang på arbejdsmarkedet. Det er honnet både enig med mig og uenig med mig. i. Blandt andet henviser han til vores forskel i alder. God fornøjelse med samtalen med Axel Honneth som følger her.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. I am Rune Lykkeberg and especially good afternoon to you Professor Axel Honneth who's with us from Frankfurt.
2: Good afternoon. Thank you for having me.
1: You've been very important here in Denmark as a representative of critical theory that many of us grew up with intellectually and were shaped by in the 70s and and, and, and in the 80s. And you've made your own, I would call it a radical reinterpretation of critical theory over the years. For a while, you were even director of Institut für Socialforschung in, in, in Frankfurt. How was your own first encounter with
2: critical theory? That's a long story, which uh, it's not easy to boil down, but uh, let, let me try my best. Yeah, I uh, When I grew up, uh, the times of the student movement, my last years in the gymnasium were already under the impression of the student movement. So I started uh, still being a student at the gymnasium to study the the writings of the Marxist tradition. And when I started my university uh, studies, uh, I started with philosophy and sociology, besides some other disciplines still allowed at that time. And in philosophy, I immediately took up my earlier uh, readings and concentrated on the whole tradition from Hegel to Marx, Lukács, and Adorno. And so I became an need, Adon- if you want so, somebody deeply filled up with the language of Adorno and the thinking of Adorno. But at the same time, I studied sociology. And what I couldn't manage is to bring my, uh, my own personal experiences within social theory and sociology in an agreement with Adorno's writings. So, what I learned in sociology for example about the class conflict about the role of culture in protest and so on and so on i couldn't really um, articulate within the framework of the traditional the tradition framework of critical theory so at that time let's say it was in the middle of my first part of studies i came into contact with habermas and that changed my whole my whole view on critical theory, because Habermas was much more open to what was going on in sociology at that time. He had already incorporated some versions of the linguistic turn, so that freshed up my whole understanding of what critical theory is about. And I started from there to reformulate, let's say, what I took as being the, the, big, the big thing in critical theory.
1: I think something that was always very attractive about critical theory to people here in Denmark, at least, and I think most places, is the connection between a critical theory and and the progressive movements that you offer theories and concepts for movements about emancipation. And that you can be an intellectual and you can be part of what's going on. You can be part of of the movement. Not only do you offer concepts of emancipation, you also promise to help realizing these these objectives that for me was the was the enchanting legacy of of critical theory this of course is very very promising very attractive but also very very difficult how do you see this legacy and promise today
2: i mean the, the legacy in fact stems from marx i think yeah who had the the impression or had 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 the idea that um, his own theory is a kind of explanation of the consciousness of the working class so that was a ruling idea within the tradition of critical theory uh, an an idea that became much more problematic with the disappearance of such movements yeah in let's say in german fascism and when they moved to the united states they were not uh, having any experience of a forward-looking social movement Instead, what they realized is a a growth of totalitarian societies and governments. So they became more or less pessimistic, if you want so. So the whole pessimistic change within critical theory was a result of uh, perceiving the disappearance of social movements. Uh, That changed again, I think, uh, to, to, uh, to repeat the name, with Habermas a little bit, because he probably was able to re-articulate critical theory such that you could see it as an expression of some movements relevant in the 60s. Um, let's say env- first environmental moves, uh, civil right movements and so on and so on. So uh, to continue that tradition and that closer link I came up with the idea uh, of a struggle for recognition. So I reinterpreted social movements as fighting for social recognition. And uh, the, 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 the difficulty there was, and still is a huge difficulty, that you have thousands of movements fighting for recognition, some undemocratic, some extremely politically problematic. Because you might say that also the the radical right in the u s. is fighting in some way for recognition, yeah, namely for a reestablishment of white supremacy, which is a fight for a traditional form of recognition. So another task was to uh, come up with a framework, a normative framework, that allows one to distinguish between forward-looking movements and backward-looking movements. So uh, that critical theory could understand itself as, let's say, the the, the reflection of uh, forward-looking movement, or forward-looking movements, to speak in the plural. And uh, the, the, the idea of struggle for recognition, therefore, was in need of a distinction between forms of recognition that are very well justified, because they are forward-looking and forms of recognition that are backward-looking because they are searching for a kind of traditional form of respect or recognition. So that made it necessary as in Habermas, I think, to come up with an idea, as you mentioned, of what it means to speak in terms of progress, because you have to have an idea of what is forward-looking. And um, I I think the the rough idea I took there came from the whole tradition of social theory, I mean modern social theory, namely the idea that um, progress is indicated by an expansion of inclusion or more inclusion and higher forms of individualization. So all social movements which, which are Uh, leaning into a direction that allows further inclusion of so far excluded people into the democratic process and allows for a further individualization of the individual personality can be described then as progressive, let's say. And critical theory then has to understand itself as the reflection or as the articulation of such movements.
1: And I think when I read it, I was very impressed by it and still is convinced by the basic structure of it. And I grew up reading a lot of Adorno and I, and, and the, they're really seducing books and seducing very beautiful sentences and you want them to be true. I always had the problem with the old Frankfurt School that I did not see capitalism as this all pervasive, totally dominant force in, in history that you could lead all Cultural, psychological, political processes back to seeing as products of capitalism. So I was very relieved to read first Habermas' uh, work and then your notion of uh, a surplus of of legitimacy. Uh, That was always, and I was trying to appeal to that. But now, the last couple of years, I sometimes feel that the space for moral struggle has been limited a lot and that maybe Adorno wasn't so wrong after all, or that the old Frankfurt School wasn't so wrong after all, that capitalism seems to be all all, all per- pervasive. Do, do you follow this line of reasoning?
2: Not really. I mean, it, I, <laughs> I know that there is a huge seduction in each time to understand what is going on in terms of complete integration or full domination. And with all the neoliberal reforms we had over the last 40 years, that impression grew up again. Yeah, The impression namely that capitalism is all invading, has such an invading power that there are no social spheres or social elements taken out from this invasion process. And th- that came together with, um, let's say, a reorientation towards a certain reading of Marx, Yeah, namely a reading of Marx that uh, allows one to say that capital is growing and growing and is, uh, let's say, destroying the rest of our life. Um, and this is a picture I never could accept. Uh, I have to say never in my life. Uh, It came partly from my sociological interests. I mean, if you grow up within sociological tradition, which tells you that any social order is conflictual, that there is permanently a kind of negotiation going on in all spheres of a society about the normative rules that are supposed to dominate, then you realize that conflict is never to be fully suppressed. Uh, repressed it is impossible to repress conflict forever and i don't see in our present a situation where uh, that kind of conflictual dimension within our societies is completely repressed so that it comes close to adorno's picture of a fully integrated society yeah um i mean take all the the social movements we have today. It would sound very strange to me to say that conflict uh, has come to a standstill because capital has uh, completely invaded all spheres. And it would be also a little bit misleading to believe that these movements that are existing are simply an expression of certain capitalist arrangements or something like that. So uh, I, I I never came close to that kind of picture. <laughs> hey,
1: one of the movements that's very strong today is uh, and, and and a movement that is in need of of concept and theory is is the climate movement uh, that 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 is maybe one of the most promising thing that's been happening over the last five or, or six years. A very very strong green movement and and you see a new generation of activists that are not the traditional activists the traditional activists are always there. How do you see climate as a challenge to the traditional critical theory? Because I thought that critical theory has a, one of its strengths from being interdisciplinary, that, that, that you have sociology, you have philosophy, you even have some economy in in, in in the beginning, but you don't have a lot of natural sciences, biology or, or physics. How does that challenge the theoretical framework?
2: That's a very complicated question. Let, let me try to answer in, in two or three steps, yeah? Uh, I mean, you are completely right. Natural sciences never played in its substance a huge role within the tradition of critical theory. What happened was, uh, like in Heidegger, you have a critique of the natural sciences or you have a critique of the self-understanding of natural sciences, a critique of positivism. So a huge distance to what's going on within the natural sciences. On the other side, um, one has to say that uh, what was always clear in the tradition of critical theory is that it should not make itself to 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 policy advisor, yeah. Hmm. So and even today, I think it would be wrong to believe that critical theory has to incorporate a lot of natural science stuff in order to advise people in how to do it better i mean how to fight against climate change i think that's not the task of critical theory the task of critical theory in my view today is to make as clear as possible the alternatives we have in fighting against the climate uh, catastrophe and there are different alternatives and i think the 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 task we have is to articulate as best as possible these alternatives. So there is the alternative, for example, to, use, to either use the market for fighting climate change, that's the program now taken even by the Green Party in Germany, or to limit the market by, let's say, forbidding certain stuff within the market. So there is one alternative. Another more deeply rooted alternative is whether we, sh- we, we have to change our worldview in order to cope with the climate and with nature. That's an extremely important question, yeah. Do we have to give up our traditional anthropocentric worldview in order to incorporate nature as the living other? Or do we have to stick to our anthropocentric worldview in order to spell out what is necessary for us um, with regard to the climate? Yeah. So these are all alternatives. And um, I think I do not see my role in giving direct advice. I mean, I would be unable to give direct advice how exactly to reduce. to reduce um, uh, or to increase uh, natural resources, yeah? That needs real sciences, natural sciences. And I see many, many specialists working on that. And I admire these specialists. But it is not, I think, my task, nor, nor my possibility to make myself to a specialist like that. So what I think is necessary for me to do is to give an as clear expression of the alternatives that are in front of us and probably allowed to make certain choices. So for example, to spell out whether incentives within the market could help to increase natural resources or whether that's a uh, cul-de-sac, yeah? whether that's not a way to go. But instead, what we have to do is to change our consumer attitudes completely to forget, forbid certain elements within the market. I'm in favor of the last. Yeah, I think it. We, we should have much more restrictions on the market today. And why not simply make an end to certain... Kinds of cars. Why not make an end to all this automobile uh, enthusiasm in Germany? So, uh, but but these are the kinds of, of alternatives we have to spell out and to bring in front uh, of the public. Yeah, to make explicit to the public what is at stake. I think m- more is not what we can do. I mean, as critical theorists, the natural scientist is now really challenged. And has to invest a lot of concrete knowledge in order to give us good advice.
1: So we're part of a larger framework where there's a kind of a division of of labor between natural sciences, movement, critical theorists, and policymakers.
2: Right, right. And critical theory never understood itself as a policymaker or even as an advisor for policymaking.
1: In your new book, which just came out, the arbiters and the the you say something that, that I was really struck by. You say it as a premise that you don't see a lot of people fighting for for, for the work-life conditions today in, in the public space, that you don't see people fighting for their rights, that it's not a very politicized battlefield. And we look at other battlefields. But I have the feeling right now, when you look at America, you have a president asking people to unionize. For the first time in my life, we have... People protesting against big companies for the way they treat their workers. I know that's also because they're they're they're, they're treated poorly. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a little confused. Do you see this as superficial things that are going on, or or do you think the battle is somewhere else?
2: Also, two answers. F- first, it's probably because I'm older than you that I'm comparing <laughs> it with the time when labor. Conflicts and labor struggles were much more in the forefront of of the understanding of the conflictual side in our society. Yeah, I mean in the 60s, uh, labor uh, conflicts, strikes were almost daily, and the strikes at that time were not only about higher income; they were mainly about co-determination, about other forms of working place. The huge movement in Germany was the humanization of work. yeah, And it was taken up by the unions. It was even defended at that time as a program by the Social Democrats. So the, the topic itself was, uh, was much more on the forefront. Uh, and the other uh, remark I wanted to make is uh, I still believe that conflicts within the work sphere or the labor sphere are not really a big thing for the political public today. I mean, it might have good reasons that other questions are more obvious, yeah? Identity politics, yeah? What, how to recognize the identity claims of certain minorities, either sexual minorities or whatever, uh, how to deal with the climate. I mean, uh, beyond all these questions, Questions about work and how to reorganize work in our societies are not very popular. That is my impression. I agree that there is a certain increase in dissatisfaction with the working conditions today at certain places, especially at places like Amazon. I mean, all this big gig economy um, corporations, but still, they didn't make it to public awareness, I think. Yeah. We have them, but they are not a big topic within the public debating about it. And uh, so my 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 new book is trying to intervention in that situation
1: and it's it's a point in the, in in the beginning of of the book, you say that one of the biggest deficits of almost all theories about democracy is that they do not take into account that most citizens, in democracies, are also persons in the labor forces. That's a free, very free translation uh, on my part. Sorry about that. But but why is this such an important lack in the democracy theories?
2: Because I think it's so obvious that um, the the democratic pro- promise. I mean, the promise of all democratic societies, societies that claim to be democratic. The promise is to enable people to be part of the public will formation, to take an active role, an active role in decision making. And if that is so, that uh, if if it's the case that this is one decisive claim of all democracies, um, then I think it is a consequence to allow or to establish the working conditions such that working people really can participate at this democratic will formation, and it is it it came almost as a surprise to me to see that this connection between fair working conditions or good enough working conditions or democratic working conditions and political democracy, yeah, will formation in the political public that this connection has. Uh, been um, neglected within democratic theory since almost fifty years. It was very vivid uh, in the whole tradition of democracy. I mean, in the, in the huge tradition of critical theory, in the in the, in the, in the not critical theory, democratic theory. Hegel was aware of it. Durkheim was aware of it. Um, they all articulated that this, this internal link between working conditions and the conditions of or for political participation. But it disappeared. And now democratic theory is mainly concerned about the political sphere. And it's leaving out the the basis in Marx, Marxian terms, yeah, the base, mm-hmm. the, our, our relations of production, our relations of work. And so i I'm pointing out, uh, i'm 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 trying to put into the middle this forgotten link between working conditions and democratic participation.
1: yes I, I never thought of it actually before. I read a book by Michael Sandel called Democracy, and it di- and it's discontent because he was talking that from the beginning, America, they were on which economic arrangement would enhance democracy. And which economic right. arrangement would not enhance democracy. It's a tradition that you also point to in the book. His analysis is that during the 20th century, that, that you, leave, you leave the democratic thinking about the workplace in favor of favoring the consumers and big big industries. And it's actually, which is funny today, in the era of Franklin D. Roosevelt, that 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 it's that it's lost. And you know, he's the big socialist hero uh, right, right,
2: to, right. To,
1: today. I remember some echoes of that thinking in my childhood of economic democracy that was still demanded by the unions, actually in the 70s. How did it die out here over the last three or four decades?
2: That's a very very good question, I have to say, and uh, I don't have a full explanation for it. I mean, especially after what you said about the vividness of. That consciousness, yeah, in earlier times, uh, I I think uh, it was extremely present to people that without adequate working conditions, good enough, almost democratic working conditions, we wouldn't have a successful political democracy. And how it died out is very hard to answer. It is, if I'm frank, I mean, and open, (laughs) I think... Partly, it's a result of a certain influence of specific forms of democratic theory. And I would say it's a result of the dominance of John Rawls and Habermas and Hannah Arendt, because they all agree more or less on not ignoring the labor sphere, but not giving the labor sphere a sufficient standing in their own theories of democracy. So that would mean it is partly a result of a certain development within theory, yeah? we, but, but, but we grow up today in political theory and in democratic theory with, um, with concepts and, uh, and theories that are blocking or ignoring the high importance of the working sphere. Uh, so that's one explanation. The other one might be um, that it has to do with the, with the not disappearance of the labor movement, but with the many, many um, failures. And yeah, you could say, yeah, with the, with the dying out of a living labor movement. I mean, uh, the dying out of a, of a living labor movement also means that those parties that once were representative of the labor movement also felt to be responsible for the labor conditions. But if these parties do not long understand themselves as representatives of the labor force, then they also get out of touch with what is going on in the labor conditions. I mean, almost the opposite, social uh, democracy in Germany had to bring about more neoliberal working conditions than ever, yeah? So uh, this, this would be my explanation, yeah? Partly internal within theory, partly external having to do with the disappearance of the labor movement and its representatives on the party level.
1: But it also turns out, reading your excellent book, that it's quite complicated. What kind of what, what are the democratic conditions that you can expect from the workplace? Because this newspaper used to be a democratic workplace and and it we totally elim, eliminated all division of labor. There was like we want to make like a basis democracy here. And everyone was rotating and it didn't work. Uh, it didn't work to just transfer democracy from the political realm into the work phrase. And it's an important point in your book that we need to understand that these are two different systems. Why, 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 are, why are these the political democracy and the division of labor? Why do they need to be different?
2: It's also a good question. That's an argument against those who believe and still believe, and there are some, that it, it the, the, the task ahead is to Organize the labor sphere exactly after the model of the democratic sphere, the political sphere. So to give full democratic self-determination to the whole work dimension. And this is an old dream of the left, yeah. And uh, I fully understand the dream, I have to say. <laughs> and I see the the utopian element in it. The problem is that. The organization of labor is in need of certain, or is under certain restraints. Let's call them functional restraints. Yeah, A lot of work has to be done that is, I mean, either dirty work or it is extremely difficult work. This all has to be organized such that complex societies like ours can be reproduced. And I don't believe that by um, by something like industrial democracy, let's call it like that, even when industrial is not completely right because industries are dying out more or less, yeah. Let's call it economic democracies, where you have full democracy de- democratic self-determination within the working sphere is or will be a functioning system. It needs certain managements that have a certain authority probably it needs, uh, is in need of certain um, competition probably, yeah. So it's probably partly in needs of markets, not necessarily capitalist markets, but of markets that allow for competition. So it, it needs incentives probably to do certain kinds of work. I mean, whatever these incentives are, yeah, symbolic recognition, financial uh, support, whatever. So this whole extremely complicated division of labor within our uh, relations of production is in need of some other steering mechanisms as the political sphere, I think. And therefore, I'm in favor of making our labor relations as democratic as possible, but not operating with the i think uh, the 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 idea that we ever can have a fully democratic labour sphere yeah so that's the the reason i'm distinguishing the two spheres and i'm saying that that political democracy is in need of as democratic working relations as possible
1: yes but it also in order to function the political democracy also need some, you could call them products in a very, very wide sense from from what is produced by the division of labor that is not right. entire, entirely democratic. So what kind of democratic expectations could we have for the, for the workplace? If we say we cannot have the same expectations and the same principles, then there are some expectations to every unique worker. What are the conditions? What are the time, the psychological dimensions? And the workplace in itself, for the worker and the workplace... What are your suggestions to the the expectations
2: we could have? Yeah, I mean, I start with analyzing the points where your own workplace is of a certain disadvantage with regard to your chances for political participation. Yeah, And I'm distinguishing between five such dimensions, and I don't want to repeat them here, but I want to make clear that certain dimensions in our working conditions are such that they are of influence uh, to the possibilities of participation in democratic reformation. That is time, how much time you have, how much your own work is recognized by the public, how good it is financially uh, paid so that you become economically independent, how good it is allowing you to have a say in the organization of the work process. So co-determination and even a certain mental dimension. If your work is too repetitive, you might be in a bad situation to fully participate in democratic formation because you, you learn more and more to internalize a certain habit that doesn't allow you to be spontaneously active in the democratic public, and so on and so on. So I'm making these distinctions. And then I ask myself, what can we do right now in order to change our working conditions so that they take a direction that allows people to have more to say in the political sphere, in the public will formation? And I'm distinguishing between two kinds of reforms we should always have in mind. Reforms or transformations outside the traditional labor market and reforms within the labor market. That's very important, yeah? Because we we always had, probably more in the past than today, experiments outside the labor market to organize labor, yeah? Take cooper- cooperations, yeah? Where you have full ownership of the... Means of production by the workers, and they have a kind of self-control. And we we we, are, we can call that labor corporations, yeah. Um, so I think one shouldn't give up that tradition completely. Instead, one should try by forcing the governments to enable such experiments that would be reforms or transformations outside the traditional labor market, but that looks quite unrealistic today, even when I think it is a necessary component of any democratic uh, politics of work. The alternative then, which is more realistic today, is to fight for reforms within the labor market. And there we start from reducing labor time as much as possible, so to have more free time, not only for privacy and for your private life, but also for political engagement. Then we have to come back to a labor market that pays sufficiently each labor contribution so that people can live independently, not being dependent, for example, on a second job, not being dependent on welfare and whatever. So get rid of all the neoliberal reforms we had over the last Last forty years, yeah, quickly get rid of these neoliberal reforms. Then what it needs is a new enthusiasm on co-determination, and not only co-determination from above, so that the unions have a say. Let's say in the in the leading bodies of an enterprise, but that co-determination has to start from below, namely at the workplace. People have to get more chances to have a say in how work is best organized in all kinds of uh, enterprises. Yeah, be it uh, white labor or black collar labor. Yeah, so whatever you have there, it needs uh, much more co-determination at the workplace itself. And it definitely needs a rearrangement of the division of labor. That's very important for me. yeah, Because certain kinds of performances were thinned out enormously in order to make more profit so that they become controllable and that they can be steered easily. So what we need is a reorganization of the division of labor. It is completely unclear how jobs are organized. It's not a natural given that jobs are organized as they are organized today. They can be enriched easily. It is not technologically impossible. It is only a question of political power and politicization of that sphere. So what would be the, the kind of work that somebody working in a hospital is allowed to, to do. I mean, is he or she only allowed to take care of the one patient or is he or she also allowed to uh, take care of uh, the the medicament, uh, medicamentation of that person and so on and so on. So these are everyday struggles, but they need uh, to be politicized so that we have the perspective of a reorganization of the division of labor. It's a very
1: inspiring read and convincing book. And it also kind of takes us back to the dialectic, you could say, between theories and concept and the social movements and, and trying to make a theory at other people's disposal that is not just saying you are right in the way, but also not being patronized and saying this is how you should think. And if we look at all the work protests today, and we do see quite an, a lot of of work protest, I agree with you, they're not as unionized and they're not as organized and not as politicized in a structural sense. It seems to me that there is a challenge here between theory and praxis, uh, uh, again, how how do you make sure that what people want when they're protesting is actually co-determination and not just lower work time and, and uh, high wages?
2: You mean where the, the the emphasis could come from or the 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 the, the motivation to find yes less? yes where yeah. do we find the common ground? I mean as, as you are saying, I think that's a difficult question of the relation between theory and practice, yeah. What I think is always needed is a kind of theory that allows to articulate individual unhappiness in a broader language so to translate feelings of disregard of injustice into a broader language and give these individual experiences a theoretical form and the idea of a new um, democratic policy of work or politics of work is meant to be such a framework yeah a framework that allows the many, many individual uh, people working under awful conditions today to find what they have in common and to give their own uh, experiences a collective language. So that what is meant when I'm speaking of a new democratic policy or politics of work. Yeah, It is meant to, to allow a unification of those individually struggling for a little better work life. So it's really a question of how you relate theory to praxis or to yes. sort of reality
1: and my my last question is is it fair to say that this is kind of a frame that's all through your work that you connect the individual the two kinds of individual freedom and say they depend on the third what you call socialify Freiheit. that that this is another interpretation of how to get from, yeah. from from me individual i don't want anyone alienating me me individual i want my autonomy but that cannot be fulfilled unless i'm part of a we
2: yes I mean, exactly. You you might say that th- that is a the red line through all my studies and my work, yeah? That what is needed is to get rid of a too individualistic understanding of freedom and subjectivity and to re-articulate what uh, brings us together, what connects us. And um, I also think with regard to the labor sphere that what connects people there is their similar experiences of being not treated well being not sufficiently recognized or esteemed for what they are doing and so in that sense it is another attempt to find another we yeah in that case the v of the labor force
1: thank you so much i think this has been such an inspiration from your work throughout the years Connecting the eye, the eye, the eye, the discontent with the powerful we. Thank you so much, Axel Honneth. Thank it you. It was such
2: a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye bye.
1: Bye.
0: Det var min samtale med den tyske socialfilosof Axel Honneth. Lad mig gentage at hans hovedværk, Kampen om anerkendelse, er kommet på dansk. Det er også hans bog som hedder Socialismens idé. Og en tekstsamling, som jeg stærkt kan anbefale, der hedder «Behovet for anerkendelse», der også er udkommet på Hans Reitzes I næste uge, der skal vi tale med en anden tysk kapitalismekritiker, men som tager sig et helt andet sted hen. Det er den helt fantastiske journalist, økonom og forfatter Ulrike Hermann, der som meget ung var ansat i en bank og tjente kapitalismen, indtil det gik op for hende, at den kapitalisme, som skabte demokrati, velstand og kvindefrigørelse, og det mener hun gør, at den også skabte noget, som ødelægger hele fundamentet for vores verden. Så selvom hun anerkender alle de fremskridt, kapitalismen har er skabt, så siger hun, vi må afskaffe det nu. Det har hun skrevet en ny bog om, som netop udkommer på dansk i dette forår, som hedder Afslutningen på kapitalismen. Så det bliver i næste uge, hvor I kan høre Ulrike Hermans analyse. Den her samtale med Axel Honneth var produceret af vores gode venner hjælper, mas Adam Vener. Tak til ham. Tak til jer for at lytte med. Jeg håber, I er med igen i næste uge. Mit navn er Rone Løgbær.